Gresham College presents The Poetry of Robert Frost, The Power and Intrigue of Simile by Professor Belinda Jack. So why have I chosen to speak about Frost? His dates are 1874 till 1963. He was described by T.S. Eliot as, and I quote, the most eminent, the most distinguished Anglo-American poet. And by Robert Graves, thus... Frost was the first American poet who could honestly be reckoned a master poet by world standards. He's also the only writer in history ever to have been awarded four Pulitzer Prizes. But his relationship with literary circles, with in-groups of other poets, was often very strained. His creative life coincided with the rise of modernism, Um, which is a problematic term. And many of the modernists tried to lure Frost into their camp, as it were, but he kept his distance. Literary modernism originates in the late 19th century and really takes off in the 20th and is marked by a very self-conscious display of refusal of tradition, subversion of tradition, um, in an attempt to explore new sensibilities. Modernists experimented with literary form following Ezra Pound's maxim, make it new. Now, Frost was committed to traditional verse forms, which he nevertheless innovated, but he abhorred the modernists' abandonment of regular structures. And in an address to the Milton Academy, Massachusetts, in 1935... He declared that, and I quote, writing free verse is like playing tennis with the net down. Frost is almost, revered almost as an American institution, but I'm not really sure how well known he is here. So a few words of biography. Frost's father was a teacher and later a journalist. He died when Robert was only 11 in 1885, and the family moved to Lawrence, Massachusetts, under the patronage of Frost's paternal grandfather, who was an overseer at a New England mill. Frost graduated from Lawrence High School in 1892, and he attended Dartmouth College briefly, but returned home to teach and to work at various jobs, including helping his mother, who was also a teacher, um, with a class of particularly rowdy boys. Frost went to Harvard, um, but only for two years, from 1897 to 1899, and left due to ill health. And shortly before his death, his grandfather, Frost's grandfather, had purchased a farm for Robert and his new wife, whom he'd met um, at college, Eleanor, in Derry, New Hampshire. And Frost managed the farm for nine years, writing poetry early in the mornings, and producing many of the poems for which he would later be celebrated. But ultimately, his farming proved unprofitable, and he returned to teaching. In 1912, the family broke out and came to England, living first in Beaconsfield. And in fact, his first collection of poetry, A Boy's Will, was published in England in 1913. And here he struck up some very important friendships with other poets, including Edward Thomas, T. E. Hume, and Ezra Pound. Pound was the first American to write a complimentary review of his poems, 
but later Frost found Pound somewhat overbearing and intrusive. Pound was one of those modernists who tried to win him over, as it were. Now, during the First World War, um, Frost returned to America and bought a farm in New Hampshire. And he settled into writing, teaching, and lecturing. And during the years 1916 to 20, 23 to 24, and then 27 to 38, that was the long stretch, he taught English at Amherst College in Massachusetts. He loved his teaching, um, and he was clearly very much loved by his pupils. So here are three images that give us a sense of, of the various sides of Frost. This is Frost the young man. This is Frost the farmer, um, with an axe over his shoulder. And this is Frost, the Pulitzer Prize winner, four times over, and the much revered national hero. Now, it could be that Frost's reputation as a national poet has prejudiced literary critics against him. When he died, J.F. Kennedy declared, and I quote, his death impoverishes us all, but he has bequeathed his nation a body of imperishable verse from which Americans will forever gain joy and understanding. Now, presidential sanction is not something that literary critics are going to be much swayed by. Quite the reverse. Um, I imagine it would be death to any living American poet today to be trumpeted by (laughs) Donald Trump. James Fox writes, though his career fully spans the modern period, and though it's impossible to speak of him as anything other than a modern poet, it's difficult to place him in the main tradition of modern poetry. By this, of course, Cox means modernism. Frost stands at a crossroads in American poetry between the 19th century and modernism of the 20th. So what I think I'm suggesting is that I think his status has been somewhat marred um, by his his status as a a national poet, and therefore, in a sense, perhaps an everyman's poet, a, a populist. But I think this is prejudice. I also think that his commitment, or semi-commitment, to traditional forms, including the sonnet form, has led other readers and critics to consider him something of a reactionary rather than an innovator like the modernists. But I think there's another more complex and intriguing reason for prejudice against his poetry, and that has to do with his use of simile. And the fact that his use of simile is quite extraordinarily various. So tonight we'll be looking at another rhetorical trope, another figure of speech, namely simile, and exploring some of uh, Frost's wonderful poems. So to set the mood, we'll begin by listening to Frost reading one of his early and very famous poems after apple picking. My long two-pointed ladder's sticking through a tree toward heaven still. And there's a barrel that I didn't fill beside it, and there may be two or three apples I didn't pick upon some bough. But I am done with apple picking now. Essence of winter sleep is on the night, the scent of apples. I am drowsing off. I cannot rub the strangeness from my sight I got from looking through a pane of glass I skimmed this morning from the drinking trough and held against the world of hoary grass. It melted, and I let it fall and break. 
But I was well upon my way to sleep before it fell, and I could tell what form my dreaming was about to take. Magnified apples appear and disappear, stem end and blossom end, and every fleck of russet showing clear. My instep arch not only keeps the ache, it keeps the pressure of a ladder round. I feel the ladder sway as the boughs bend, and I keep hearing from the cellar bin the rumbling sound of load on load of apples coming in, for I've had too much of apple picking. I am overtired of the great harvest I myself desired. There were ten thousand thousand fruit to touch, cherish in hand, let down and not let fall. For all that struck the earth, no matter if not bruised or spiked with stubble, went surely to the cider apple heap as of no worth. One can see what will trouble this sleep of mine, whatever sleep it is. Were he not gone, the woodchuck could say whether it's like his long sleep as I describe its coming on, or just some human sleep. It's a deceptively simple poem until it comes to those final four lines where the first simile is introduced. Frost was concerned, amongst other things, to bring the rhythms of vernacular speech to his poetry. So try to bear in mind his voice and his intonation, his manner of reading. So critics, as I say, have disparaged Frost, claiming that he's a poet without technical ability, without rhetorical complexity or intellectual density. And one of the reasons I think this is the case is to do with a common literary critical prejudice namely the rating of metaphor over simile. Simile is also often called the weakest form of metaphor. Metaphor is commonly seen as the properly poetic um, figure of speech. And simile has often been proposed as better able to express logical qualities of the mind. Now, by way of example, uh, critic Robert Boyle, who's actually very good on Gerald Manley. Hopkins wrote a book um, specifically on metaphor in Hopkins. And I think there's an element of typical prejudice in the way Boyle uh, approaches metaphor and simile. Um, in his book, he demonstrates that, and I quote, Hopkins' mind tends towards expression through metaphor rather than through simile. But here, he's not really stating a simple fact. Rather, he's making an aesthetic judgment He's saying that Hopkins is great poetry because of his deft use of metaphor. Boyle pays virtually no attention to Hopkins' use of simile, not because Hopkins doesn't use it, but because of Boyle's implicit attitude to simile. It's a trope that's much less poetic than metaphor. And he writes, to a mind which prefers the clarity and order of content... Simile is the natural expression. To a mind which hungers for the reality of being, even involved as being is in the darkness of unintelligibility, mystery and confusion, metaphor is the natural expression. So for Boyle, metaphor is the creative force of the imagination. He says simile deals with relation between beings, not directly with being itself. Hence, since the two sides of the simile both exist outside the mind, simile can be used by the scientist. 
Now, the implication here is that the quest for knowledge undertaken by the scientist is at the furthest remove from the poet's pursuit. And I don't believe this is necessarily always the case. And as I hope to show, it's not the case in the poetry of Robert Frost. Now, Frost's use of simile across the years is strongly related to the growing complexity of his intellectual convictions about what we can know about ourselves and being in the world. Sometimes he uses simile to clarify, endorsing one of Boyle's definitions. This may be true of his early poetry, but in his mature poetry, the trope is put to work in different and more complex ways. His struggle to express the inexpressible is made especially visible in his long efforts to come to terms with this figure of speech, to mould its logical structure, as Boyle would say, so that it suits his expressive needs. And I think mastery of this figure of speech is perhaps more difficult than mastery of metaphor itself. There's more to simile and metaphor than meets the eye, so to speak. Philosophers of language often use the Shakespearean example of Romeo and Juliet. Romeo declares that Juliet is the son. This is patently untrue. Juliet is a young woman and the sun is a star. I thought it was a planet, but I was corrected by my son. In this example, the metaphor is indistinguishable, many argue, from simile. What we understand is that Juliet is like the sun, the simile being introduced by the like. So here, metaphor and simile amount to the same thing. In both cases, an interpretive response is required of us. Juliet is warm, brilliant, Romeo's world revolves around her, and so on. In these senses, Juliet and the sun are alike. So what exactly do we understand simile to be? It's a figure of speech in which a comparison is expressed by the specific use of a word or a phrase such as like, as, than, seems, or Frost's favourite, as if. The technical terms tenor and vehicle um, have been used and um, new terms have been proposed, but this remains the sort of dominant way of looking at, at simile, tenor and vehicle. So in the statement, Juliet is like the sun, Juliet is the tenor, and the sun is the vehicle. Now, similes exist on an extraordinary scale, from those which can be immediately assimilated and understood, and which clarify, to those that bemuse or amuse. So let's consider some at the far end of the scale. The earth is blue like an orange. Here the tenor is the earth and the vehicle is the orange. This is the surrealist poet, the French surrealist Paul Éluard. Well, we've seen images of the earth from outer space which show it to be blue. And we know that the earth and oranges are both, roughly speaking, spherical. So the earth and an orange can surely be likened one to the other. But there's a problem. Oranges are orange in colour. Let's take another rather extraordinary simile. This is T.S. Eliot. He laughed like an irresponsible fetus. Now, assuming that we know to whom the he refers, where do we find an irresponsible fetus whose laugh we can study? Eliot adds to the simile and gives clues for its interpretation by way of metaphor and further simile. 
His laughter was submarine and profound, like the old man of the seas, hidden under coral islands where bodies of drowned men drift down in the green silence, dropping from fingers of surf. That's from Mr. Apollinax. So although the, the simile that's first proposed seems very, very surreal, very strange, we begin to understand it within the context. I can't resist quoting a couple more lines from Mr. Apollinax, which I particularly like. I looked for the head of Mr. Apollinax rolling under a chair with seaweed in its hair. Mr. Apollinax by this point has lost his head. In fact, it appears that Mr. Apollinax has laughed his head off. Still more extreme, what about this simile? He is as handsome as the chance encounter upon a dissecting table of a sewing machine and an umbrella. That's another proto-surrealist, Lautréamont in Les Champs de Maldoror. Now, what I want to argue is that Frost's increasingly complex use of similes, and I hope those examples demonstrate just what an extraordinary range of similes can be created, it satisfied his own intellectual needs and it also satisfied the needs of modern poetry. And in a curious way, I think his similes are an attempt at the subordination of expression by nodding to a word that doesn't exist so you say something is like something else because you can't say what it is because the word doesn't exist. So in this sense, his use of simile shows him struggling with the problem of referential inadequacy. And by that I mean we don't have words always to refer to the things we want to refer to. And so simile is a way in a sense of, of exposing to the reader that inadequacy. It's like this, it's like that, but it's never, it never is it. So meaning may be imponderable, but the similes trace a kind of outline or produce a sort of shadow for what is there. And they do so with this extraordinary sense of sort of scientific exactitude. Now, Frost was a great admirer of the poet Matthew Arnold. And in The Buried Life, Arnold wrote, But hardly have we for one little hour been on our own line, have we been ourselves, hardly had skill to utter one of all the nameless feelings that course through our breast, but they course on forever unexpressed. Similarly, in Frost, allows for the tracing of an outline of the otherwise nameless and unexpressed. Now, I'd like to look at a few examples in isolation, and then at a number of others exploring how they work within the wider patterns of the poems in which they occur. Mending Wall is not just the title of one of Frost's most famous poems, it's a trope of American culture. Two justices in the Supreme Court went as far as to cite it in order to illustrate two points of view in constitutional law. There aren't many poems that have been used in this way. It's a dramatic monologue. And the speaker of the poem relates a conversation he's had with a neighbour. It's springtime, and the two men have decided to set about mending the wall that separates their two properties. So there's man one side and man the other, and they work their way along dealing with the fallen stones. 
And the speaker decides to engage with his neighbour in a discussion about the needs for a wall or its possible redundancy. Are these boundary markers actually necessary? And the wall becomes a powerful metaphor. First, for a lack of imaginative freedom, a kind of tyranny enclosing the poet. But for the neighbour, the wall's a metaphor for the rule of tradition and the necessity of limit markers and boundaries as a sign of individual's ownership. So the speaker argues, my apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. And the response has become an American idiom. He only says, good fences make good neighbours. And the discussion continues, somewhat one-sided. Why do they make good neighbours? And so on. And then the neighbours described through the use of simile. I see him there bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. I see him there bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. Now, the judgment of the neighbour is not given by way of metaphor. We're not told he was a savage armed, merely like one. This is only suggestion. We talk metaphorically of the Stone Age, sometimes using it to suggest the archetypally primitive. Not only is the neighbour likened to a Stone Age savage, he is armed too, not with a firearm, but with his stones. The poem dramatises the American debate between two principles, the freedom of the imagination without boundaries and the pragmatic need to check dreams to keep society in order. And in this poem, the speaker's use of the simile suggests that he's on the side of the liberals. Hyla Brook is one of many Frost poems which begins contemplating a natural object, here a stream, which in June has run dry. And metaphor is beautifully exploited. Its bed is left a faded paper sheet of dead leaves stuck together by the heat. Its bed is left a faded paper sheet of dead leaves stuck together by the heat. If anyone's ever walked along a dried up stream bed in summer, I think this is very vivid. And one reading of the poem is that the stream represents poetic inspiration, which is run dry, a, a blank, as it were, faded paper sheet. But the poem also deftly exploits simile. The stream has dried up and the cattle have been moved accordingly. And I quote, And taken with it all the hyla breed that shouted in the mist a month ago like ghost of sleigh bells in a ghost of snow. So the cattle have been taken from the field where they were that shouted in the mist a month ago like ghost of sleigh bells in a ghost of snow. Now the vehicle, that part of the simile, ghost of sleigh bells in a ghost of snow could hardly evoke anything more elusive and mysterious. Sleigh bells awake our aural sense whereas ghosts awake our visual sense or even a kind of negative of our visual sense. And the idea of a ghost of snow is so white as to suggest a whiteout. This is 
simile used to suggest, used in such an elusive way that it just gives what I described earlier as a shadow or an outline of what it is that the poet is evoking. And there's a a similarly nebulous simile in The Runaway, which is a poem about a horse that's bolted. And then we saw him bolt. We heard the miniature thunder where he fled, and we saw him, or thought we saw him, dim and grey, like a shadow across instead of behind the flakes. Like a shadow across instead of behind the flakes. Now, this is visually complex. Shadows are the effect of light, not the object. And the prepositions across and behind in relation to snowflakes is rather dizzying. Now, both Mending Wall and High Le Brook are relatively early frost poems. But already, I think, we can see just how important Frost's use of simile is and just how Curiously, in a sense, he uses it, not to simplify, not to explicate, but in some way to make more mysterious. Now, I'd like to look at a pair of poems, one early, one late, um, which are thematically quite linked. The first is stars, and the second is take something like a star. Stars was first published in A Boy's Will um, of 1913. That was his first collection with the gloss, and I quote, there is no oversight of human affairs. There is no oversight of human affairs. Appealing to the stars is symbolic often of our humble place in the universe, but it also allows for the powers of human imagination latent within us. And the expanse of virgin snow in the poem is conjoined to the symbol of the stars. It stands for the empty places within us and without us, and also a tabula rasa, a clean sheet on which we can inscribe the metaphors and similes which link us with the objects around us. Most importantly, in my view, this early poem already shows signs of Frost's status as a speculative poet, questing for meaning rather than stating it, and this by way of his use of simile. Here's the first stanza. How countlessly they congregate o'er our tumultuous snow, which flows in shapes as tall as trees, where wintry winds do blow. Now, as tall as might be taken to be a simile, but no interpretive act is really required of us. The comparison is straightforward. The snow is as deep as the height of the trees. But then in stanza two, things become more complicated. As if with keenness for our fate, our faltering few steps on to white rest and a place of rest, invisible at dawn. Now, as if here is another kind of simile. This is figurative language. It is as if the stars were concerned for the the fate of the walker in the snow, but they are not really. This is similarly exploited to undermine the pathetic fallacy. Pathetic fallacy being this idea that you can endow nature or inanimate objects with human traits and feelings, as in the laughing skies or the stubborn stone. Frost wants to refuse the pathetic fallacy. And this becomes clear as the poem progresses. We have a pivotal 
simile conjoined to a metaphor. And yet, with neither love nor hate, those stars, like some snow-white Minerva's snow-white marble eyes, without the gift of sight. The bright stars are like, simile, the white eyes of the goddess Minerva, and then her eyes are snow-white marble, which is metaphor, and therefore without the gift of sight. Minerva, of course, was the Roman goddess of wisdom, art, and war. So already in this relatively early poem, Frost is exploiting the speculative power of simile, not to provide clarification, but to undermine the romantic notion that the stars look down on us with benign concern. The stars are likened to blind eyes that cannot see. Frost wrote a number of wonderful poems about the night sky, and one of the most sophisticated is Choose Something Like a Star, which was also published under the title Take Something Like a Star. Uh, It was first published in Come In and Other Poems in 1943. And Frost described the poem in a statement for the magazine Poet's Choice, saying that it, and I quote, mingles science and spirit whilst playing with words. Again, Frost is exploring the the pathetic fallacy. Um, I won't won't read the whole of it, um, but I'll pick up on various points, but it may be useful to see the full poem. So it begins with what's known rhetorically as an apostrophe, O, um, an appeal to someone else or something else. And this O star sets up certain expectations in terms of the tone of the poem. Um, There's an excellent entry on this poem in the Robert Frost Encyclopedia. The tone, however, shifts and changes. The speaker allows that the star has a right to some obscurity. But the deferential qualifications of lines four and five, it will not do to say of night, since dark is what brings out your light. Through the witty turn of line five, which alludes to the 16th and 17th century tradition of metaphysical intellectualization. Then the humor of line 11 explores the wit of Tudor lyric poetry. The star's response to being bid to say something we can learn by heart and when alone repeat parodies the cliched hyperbole of courtly love poetry. I burn. Now, the reference to Keats's um, Eremite is also important. Keats rejects the meaning of the star as a remote, benign presence watching over us, a sleepless Eremite. Keats seeks instead to make a star a symbol of passionate human constancy, Eremite, of course, being a hermit or a recluse. Now, the vagueness of the title, Take Something Like a Star, is fundamental to the poem. What is there, one wonders, that is like a star? Or is the like here functioning not really as simile, but rather as a for instance? Now, the poem ends with the same reference. So when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may take something like a star to stay our minds on and be stayed. Now, the pun, stay, to stay our mind on, means to rest, and stayed meaning steady or possibly conservative, adds a satirical, sceptical tone. Again, there's a speculative sense in the poem. Contemplating a star may bring us peace, 
but it's a cliched way to behave, hence stave perhaps meaning conservative. Frost maintained that if we cannot see that all metaphor breaks down somewhere, and here he's using metaphor to include simile, we cannot know what to believe or how far to believe in anything. Now, this idea is explored most thoroughly in design. I found a dimpled spider, fat and white, on a white heel all. Heel all is a wayside flower, and they're normally blue. On a white heel all also has medicinal, as the name suggests, medicinal properties. I found a dimpled spider, fat and white, on a white heel all, holding up a moth like a white piece of rigid satin cloth. Assorted characters of death and blight, mixed ready to begin the morning rite, like the ingredients of a witch's broth. A snowdrop spider, a flower like a froth, and dead wings carried like a paper kite. What had that flower to do with being white? the wayside blue and innocent heel all? What brought the kindred spider to that height, then steered the white moth thither in the night? What but design of darkness to a pool, if design govern in a thing so small? Now, design is an overtly speculative poem. It explores the theological argument that God's munificent design for the universe can be deduced from looking at some aspect of his creation. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Well, this drama, this scene of the spider and the moth does not seem good. It shows Frost to be the anti-romantic that he is through and through it undermines that benign view of the universe, but it doesn't tell us much about how Frost did view the universe. The first stanza exploits simile, while the second, which according to the tradition, and I'll come on to that in a moment, um, should explain the first stanza, instead asks a whole lot of questions which remain unanswered. The poem has a narrative. The speaker finds a white spider on a white heel all, which, as I say, would normally be blue, eating a dead white moth. And in the second stanza, where in the Petrarchan sonnet form, which this is essentially, the second stanza would explicate the first stanza. But instead of doing that, the speaker considers the meaning of this scene. What is the meaning of this that I have beheld, this savage drama? Is design evil? Is the designer wholly absent from the world? Um, critics, uh, taking their cue from Lionel Trilling, um, remark, um, from Lionel Trilling's remarks, stress the, this is the word Trilling uses, terrifying implications of the poem. The speaker's confused by his own metaphysics of whiteness and darkness. So one would expect the whiteness to signify purity, to signify life, um, to signify goodness and so on, but here it's reversed. The, the speaker's existential angst stems from the failure of the created world to impart meaning. The speaker, you could say, stands alone 
in the obscurity of his own metaphysics. Now, the form of the poem, as always in Frost, is key. And this poem is actually written in the form of the Petrarchan sonnet with the variant sestet, the last six lines. There's that sense of reasoned argument in the first eight lines, but the sestet doesn't provide us with the answers that we had expected from the initial octave. So design is also, in a sense, a poem about its own design. The spider, the moth, and the helor are kindred. They exist in an association which cannot be made sense of by means of simile or scheme. The similes, in some sense, seem designed not to work. They function really as repetitions. The moth is likened to rigid satin cloth. The dead wings of the moth are carried like a paper kite. Simile, which is supposed to clarify at one end of the scale of simile, to add precision, seems to add nothing. It seems in some sense to fail. And this contributes to the sense of metaphysical failure in the poem as a whole. Things remain as mysterious despite the repeated use of simile, which is meant to get us closer to a point of clarification. What the speaker describes is a thing so small, but it comes to stand for the mysteries of the created world, including its terrible savagery. The design of the natural world may be beyond our comprehension. The design of the sonnet form is not. The poem draws on the imponderables of the natural world and places words into a form, that is, into a linguistic unit that has balance, structure, regularity, a web of meaning, which is the only meaning we're given. And in his poem, Pertinax, Frost writes, let chaos storm, let cloud shapes swarm, I wait for form. Let chaos storm, let cloud shapes swarm, I wait for form. Now I'd like to explore one further poem in terms of its extraordinary use of simile. And the poem is Come In, that was first published in 1941. And as in so many of Frost's poems, the speaker is out in nature and experiences an encounter and then seeks to understand what that encounter is, what's its meaning. As I came to the edge of the woods, thrush music, hark. Now, if it was dusk outside, inside it was dark. Too dark in the woods for a bird by sleight of wing to better its perch for the night, though it still could sing. The last of the light of the sun that had died in the west still lives for one sing more in a thrush's breast. Far in the pillared dark, thrush music went, almost like a call to come in to the dark and lament. But no, I was out for stars. I would not come in. I meant not even if asked, and I hadn't been. The poem's imagery is dominated by darkness and light. Dusk, dark, too dark, night, last of the light of the sun, pillared dark, which perhaps is a, is an Im, uh, excites an image of the, of the trees, the pillared dark, the trees in the wood um, likened to pillars. 
um, dark and perhaps stars, which are, after all, bright pinpoints of the night sky. So a lot of the vocabulary is to do with darkness and light. And the contrast between the light and the darkness is associated with death and life. The last of the light of the sun that had died in the west still lives for one seeing more in a thrush's breast. Now, the simile in the line, almost like a call, provides the turning point in the poem. The eye that's introduced in the first line only reappears in the final stanza, although the almost like a call must mean that the song has been apprehended um, by the speaker. So there, in a sense, there's an implicit I or me. It's almost as though the thrush's song is a call to the speaker to enter the dark and lament. But the final stanza is one of assertions. I was out for stars. I would not come in. I meant not even if asked, and I hadn't been. Again, it's a poem that refuses the pathetic fallacy. The song of the thrush isn't calling the speaker. His song is not just like a call, but almost like a call. And yet the apprehension by the speaker of thrush song at the end of the day stimulates the imagination. It is a call to creativity. Uh, Frost sometimes used this um, poem, I don't know how serious he was, but as a kind of poem about his relationship with other poets, and in particular the modernists. Um, he wasn't going to go into that darkness, which is what he thought some of the modernist poets had been drawn into. Um, he wanted to stay outside, and these assertions at the end, no, I was out for stars, I was looking for something else poetically, I would not come in, um, even if he'd been asked. There's another very magical simile involving birds in the poem, The Need to be Versed in Country Things. The birds that came into it through the air at broken windows flew out and in, their murmur more like the sigh we sigh from too much dwelling on what has been. Their murmur more like the sigh we sigh from too much dwelling on what has been. Again, the simile is qualified, more like, and again, the pathetic fallacy is refused, but the experience of nature has provided the stimulus to the imagination. Now, I'd like to end by suggesting that Frost's commitment to simile and his increasingly complex exploitation of simile is related to his commitment to form, um, that sense that without form you're playing tennis with a net down. Words in themselves, Frost said, do not convey meaning. And he wrote that as early as 1915. And he went on to say, when in doubt, there is always form to go on with. And form, structure, like, uh, like simile, is about creating relationships, is about creating structures in which there are relationships, say, between the terminal rhyme of the lines or relationships between what's explored, stanza by stanza. Form is relationships, and so is simile. And like the philosopher Henri Bergson, whom Frost greatly admired, Frost accepts the uncertainties and instabilities of reality, but he believed that we can prevail over temporal limitations by the imposition of form. Writing about the process of making poems, he says, and I quote, 
no one can really hold that the ecstasy should be static and stand still in one place. It begins in delight. It inclines to the impulse. It assumes direction with the first line laid down. It runs its course of lucky events and ends in a clarification of life. Not necessarily a great clarification, such as sects and cults are founded on, but in a momentary stay against confusion. A momentary stay against confusion. And that momentary stay is a function of form. And the momentary stay allows us as readers to feel what Seamus Heaney beautifully describes as the cold tingle of infinity. But Frost isn't all existential doom and gloom. Um, Here's a very different poem in a glass of cider. It seemed I was a mite of sediment that waited for the bottom to ferment so I could catch a bubble in a scent. I rode up on one till the bubble burst. And when that left me to sink back, reversed, I was no worse off than I was at first. I'd catch another bubble if I waited. The thing was to get now and then elated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a comic poem, but it's maybe also a poem about hope and disappointment, um, about the need to keep at it. And Frost writes about the process of of writing. Um, That poem itself could be about attempts to write which fail, but you wait for the next bubble. And he wrote about poetry making in The Figure a Poem Makes. I tell how there may be a better wildness of logic than of inconsequence, but the logic is backward in retrospect, after the act. It must be more felt than seen ahead like prophecy. It must be a revelation or a series of revelations as much for the poet as for the reader. For it to be that, there must have been the greatest freedom of the material to move about in it and to establish relations in it regardless of time and space, previous relation and everything but affinity. In Frost, the mystery is always a revelation, or the revelation remains a mystery. Frost wrote, We dance round in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. We dance round in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. Frost can tell us what the secret is like, but not what it is. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.